Maybe you were singing along with the song, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. So thankful for that today and hope you are as well. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to consider verses 1 through 13 today in a message entitled, The Miracle of Pentecost. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The big idea is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers and churches to live for the glory of God, to share the good news about Jesus, and to advance the kingdom of God. The Acts of the Apostles is written by Luke, Dr. Luke, the Gentile. It emphasizes Peter in the first half, Paul in the second half as the gospel was going forth to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish peoples. And then the book ends before the end of the Apostle Paul's life in Rome. Uh, He's in Rome awaiting his appeal to Caesar. And um, the church is birthed in the passage before us today and the latter part of this chapter specifically and began to spread throughout the known world. Just a little bit of review of where we've come from. Chapter 1 in verse 1 through 11 is all about Jesus. It's about his life, the fact that he taught, he suffered on the cross and he died, he rose from the dead and he promised the Holy Spirit. And that's the realization in Acts chapter 2. He also gave the Great Commission in verse 8 of chapter 1. And we're reminded of the mission that we have as the church. And then chapter 1 in verse 12 to 26 uh, focuses on the importance of being united in prayer. So followers of Jesus pray, we pray together, and we pray constantly. Now there's a direct connection to these main ideas that are in these early verses and early chapters. We have Jesus, who is the exalted one, who is lifted high, his name is glorified. We have the call to be united in prayer uh, by Jesus himself, and that's the focus of a lot of scripture, is the importance of us praying both individually and collectively. And then we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that that helps us accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. And through prayer, God invites us into an ever-growing relationship with Him, and we're growing in our dependence on Him, which is significant as it relates to the work of the Holy Spirit specifically. Now, the subject before us in Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. The word literally means 50th. Uh, Pentecost was a Jewish feast day in the Old Testament, except they didn't call it Pentecost because that's a Greek name. The Jews call Pentecost the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks. It's mentioned in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a celebration of the beginning of the early weeks of harvest. So there were essentially two harvests in those days. One that took place in May and June, somewhere in that time frame, and then one that took place in the fall of the year. Uh, Pentecost would fall during the earlier one, and at Pentecost, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented to God, so the day was called the day of the first fruits. Now, we want to make a spiritual parallel to this with the first fruits of Christ's resurrection and what that means for us, also the promise that came out of that with the Holy Spirit, 
But to arrive at Pentecost, you would go to the day of the, the celebration of the first fruits and count off 50 days. Or from a New Testament resurrection perspective, you're counting off the time from the resurrection of Jesus to the time that they went to pray and to wait, and then finally Pentecost, which would be 50 days. Now, the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament, so this was not a new concept. And the Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus. And it would be when the Holy Spirit came down that Peter stood to speak to the crowd about repentance and faith. And in that moment, the church was born and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus represents the first fruits for us. And I think that Acts chapter 2 should be interpreted in light of Acts chapter 1 and verse 4 through 8. Now here's the connection that I want to make. Uh, on this particular uh, idea. Uh, the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that they would be, and then we in turn would be his witnesses. And the ministry of the disciples in our ministry depends on reliance on the Holy Spirit. This is the dawning of the age of the Holy Spirit where he was coming to indwell followers of Jesus. So what I want to do is I want us to consider uh, three aspects of God's plan that are clearly shown at Pentecost. And the first is this, the power to fulfill God's plan is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Now, let's pick up reading in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 4 as we begin. Beginning in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I want to emphasize the phrase, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is in every regard God. And Jesus calls him the paraclete or the comforter. He's our counselor. He's the one who comes alongside of us to help. So this is not a small matter of significance. This is a major emphasis in how the power of God is at work in us. Now, prior to Pentecost, clearly the Holy Spirit was active in transforming people who had faith. Uh, he would empower and anoint people to serve God. But it seems like the pattern is uh, he would work situationally to give a person or a group of people the power that they needed to bring something to pass. Or there would be a situational anointing where they were empowered to do something that God was leading them to do. But he did not permanently indwell all believers. And in the upper room, Jesus told the disciples he would send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would be with them forever. John 14 and verse 16 says, you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of the promise. In Acts chapter 8, the Spirit, you remember, was poured out on the Samaritans through the apostles. 
so that uh, both they and the, the apostles would know that they were members of the body of Christ. The same thing happened with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. It's also uh, noted in Acts chapter 19 with the followers of, of John's baptism. And the way we can think about the book of Acts, not just on this idea, but on a number of ideas, is that it was transitional in nature. And it's been described specifically as it relates to the miraculous uh, manifestations that took place at Pentecost, that these things were like the scaffolding uh, on the building of the early New Testament church. Uh, some of the people at times weren't fully aware that the Holy Spirit had come or what the significance of that was. And there's a building on this even as we work our way through the remainder of Acts. We know as well that we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, which means we are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. That happens because we've been baptized, because we've been sealed for the day of redemption, because the Spirit of God indwells us and we belong to Christ, and the filling of the Holy Spirit takes place on an ongoing basis, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place when a person is saved. So when you understand the gospel and you're convicted of your need for Jesus Christ and you receive him into your life by faith, you are justified, declared righteous in Jesus. You're regenerated. You're born again. You, you have new life in him. And the spirit of God indwells you. He is permanently in you and with you always. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 9, you're not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. He said, for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So the baptism is connected directly to our salvation. The filling of the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis is connected directly to our surrender. So it's an ongoing daily surrender to the Lord Jesus by the power of the Spirit, and he's working through us. Now, you'll pick up on the fact here that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was characterized by three miraculous phenomena. The first miraculous phenomenon was that there was a sound of a violent rushing wind that filled the house. And this violent rushing wind was primarily a representation of invisible power. You can see the effects of the wind, but you cannot see the wind itself. So you can see the effects of a very dangerous tornado or straight line wind or thunderstorm wind or whatever, but you can't see the wind itself. Well, that's similar to what's taking place here. The disciples heard the noise and it was a rather miraculous sound that came from heaven. And the noise was loud enough that it caused the crowd that gathered to want to find out uh, what was happening. And the Hebrew and Greek words for wind and spirit are the same. In Ezekiel 37, God commanded the prophet to prophesy to the winds to breathe on a valley of dry bones. And the breath of life would come into them. God explained he would put his spirit within his people, and that they would come to life. See, that's what God does for us when he saves us. He brings us from death to life. He brings us from the flesh 
to the Spirit. And in John 3, you remember Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. And um, he talked in that encounter with Nicodemus about the need uh, to be born again. And the significance of the role of the Holy Spirit in that. And he said that the wind blows where it wishes. And what did Jesus say? And you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And then he said this. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we have these parallels. There's also the visible sign of tongues of fire resting on each person. Uh, Throughout the Bible, fire symbolizes God's holy presence. Think about Moses at the burning bush. It was not consumed. Israel in the wilderness guided and protected by the pillar of fire. John the Baptist said Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The final place of judgment is the lake of fire that will burn forever and ever. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Fire brings light and heat and purifies us spiritually. So what's taking place here is something miraculous, that the fire on the day of Pentecost appeared in the form of tongues. And it symbolizes the power of God through his work. But there's a third manifestation here. The miraculous speaking in foreign languages that they did not previously know how to speak. Now, let me just say, in light of this entire passage, I could explain it all to you, and I'm going to in some sense, very logically, give you the reasons for all of it, and it's going to make sense. But I'm going to tell you, when the power of God is at work, there's just some things happen that aren't fully explicable. There's some things that we can easily oversimplify and not understand that what we are reading about here is something supernatural. Now, that's significant because we need the supernatural power of God in our lives. And if God can do these things and he is able and he is, then that's the kind of power we're relying on. You got a need, a prayer, a desire, a direction, You need the power of God to help you see it come to pass. And the gift of tongues manifested at Pentecost represent the ability to speak a foreign language that they had not studied. And the disciples spoke in languages that the native speakers could understand. We are not encouraged to seek the gift of tongues. The Holy Spirit gave these miraculous gifts, as I've already mentioned earlier, for a confirmation of the apostolic witness it was for the, uh, the foundation of the early church. And through that power, people could see that the messengers and the message were authentic. And that was the main point. We need an attentive responsiveness to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And here's where I think part of the shortcoming is in the modern age in the church. Many of us are decent people. We know what's right. We want to do what's right, generally speaking. We see the significance of it all. But it's easy for any of us to just go through the motions. It's easy for us to have heard it so many times that we're just going along. And we're not truly experiencing life with God in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, we might get bored with Christianity, we might get distracted, we might get off track, 
And we need to continually come back to the fact that Jesus is the main focus. The Holy Spirit is the power. And we are the recipients. The power to fulfill God's plan is the Holy Spirit. And the disciples were filled in fulfillment of the promise. They were filled as they received it in faith. They, they were filled in God's timing. They were filled together in unity. And they were filled in some unusual ways. But at the core of it, this was God coming to them in their fallen condition. And in their need for his power. And in a way, Eden and Babel both are redeemed. And their negative effects are nullified through the finished work of Jesus. So the power to fulfill God's plan is the Holy Spirit. But then there's a second aspect of God's plan that is clearly shown at Pentecost. And that is the reach of God's plan is all nations. Now let's pick back up in verse 5. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout men or devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because... Each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. Devout men Devout people from every nation under heaven. Now, why does Luke include for us a list of nations? He starts east of Israel and he encircles the land. Uh, most were Jews with a few Gentile uh, proselytes. These were Jews of the diaspora or the dispersion who found themselves now in Jerusalem for the feast. It's presumably a possibility that they were bilingual in the sense that they would have spoken Greek and their native languages potentially as having a knowledge of the, of the trade language. But they were dumbfounded to hear these Jews from Galilee speaking the language of their people from all of these different areas. So it begins with the farthest east, the Parthians, and then proceeds further and further until he comes to Judea and then the Western countries as well. So back to my question, why does Luke present the list of nations? Because God loves the nations. That's why. Because it has been God's plan to reach the nations from the beginning. This is not an afterthought. This is not God's second plan. This is at the heart of his plan. Think about it, all the way back to, to Genesis 12, when God raised Abram up and he made a covenant with him, what did he tell him he was going to do? He told him he was going to make of him a great nation. But then he said, through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So it was God's plan that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How would the nations of the earth be blessed? Through the Messiah. 
through Jesus. And that's what he's communicating here as they're able to understand the gospel in their own language. Now, many of you know that I grew up in Central Florida. We've been gone for half a lifetime now. Uh, but I think that God gave me a particular interest as even a child and a love for the nations in a way that I simply didn't understand at the time. Uh, I didn't understand how God's plan was converging and coming together for my life. But isn't that how God often works? We can look back and we can see the pieces that come together of our lives and our backgrounds and our education and our experience and our relationships and all those things. And we can see how it comes together for God's plan uh, for the ages. And I think about my growing up years when I was, when I was born, Florida was much different than it is now. I think there's somewhere around 7 million people maybe. And then by the time we uh, left, there were somewhere around 15 million people. And I hear it's somewhere around 23 to 24 million people now uh, and growing, depending on whose numbers you're looking at. But I can remember, even in that kind of a context, people from all over the world, uh, Spanish-speaking people from Mexico and multiple Central American countries. We were involved in commercial agriculture, so we had a lot of people working and, and uh, a lot of people coming from a lot of different places. Uh, South Americans, uh, French Canadians, Jamaicans, Chinese, Haitians, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, uh, Vietnamese, Filipinos, and more. All that was a part of my experience growing up. And I can remember just being interested. It, it was just something I was just drawn to. I didn't even know why I was interested. I was a Christian at an early age, but I didn't really have a vision for, for missions or for the nations or anything. But God put in my heart at that point an interest in something that was bigger than what I could immediately see. Now, I took my first mission trip out of the country in January of 2000. I was 28 years old, and I was with a seminary group that went to a northern part of Mexico for about a week. We got dropped off, and uh, it was uh, four of us and a professor, and we didn't see anybody for the whole week. It was our responsibility to work in that particular community with the pastor and his wife and to evangelize, and that's what we did all week. And I can tell you that that very first opportunity I had to actually be somewhere else, uh, God gripped me through that in a way that my life was forever changed and remains changed today. And then uh, through the years, I've had many, many opportunities to be in a lot of different places and a lot of different cultures, but it always brings me back to this central point of the mission that God's plan is intended to reach all nations. That's his plan. Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that his ways would be known on the earth and his salvation among all nations. You see, the scripture describes the men at Pentecost as devout men. That means they were God-fearing men. They had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the purpose of worship. But they didn't know fully what they were going to experience when they got there. And they're all amazed and they're perplexed. So they asked, what could this mean? And others accused them of, of being drunk. And they asked the question, are not all these people who speak Galileans? Now, why does that matter that they were Galileans? Well, let me just translate this for you. They were saying, that's country folks. I mean, these are commercial fishermen. They're from an outer province. 
They're, they're from far away. They're, they're not highly educated, astute people. They're just country people. And they're like, wait a minute. The Galileans are the ones who are speaking this, not known for their eloquence. The commentator Richard Longnecker said that Galileans had difficulty pronouncing gutturals and had the habit of swallowing syllables when they spoke so that they were looked down upon by the people of Jerusalem as being provincial. Now, I've never been called provincial, but I have been called country. And that's a badge that I'll wear with honor. Not ashamed of it. I came from the country. I mean, deep in the country, folks, I did. And I know I cleaned up pretty well and had a lot of opportunities since then. But here's the beauty of this. God works through people like the Galileans. That's who he works through. He, it's not about our eloquence. It's not about how impressive we are. Because there's not many of us that are wise. There are not many of us that are impressive in much of any way. But yet, when God is at work, that's the change to the equation. And God intends the good news for all nations. All nations. And the recurring message of Acts is that we are to be his witnesses. You know how many times the word witness or, or some concept of being a witness appears in the book of Acts? 39 times. We are witnesses. Jesus has saved us by his blood and by the power of his resurrection. The Holy Spirit indwells us so that we have the power, and now we're to be witnesses. So we have what we need, but are we going to be faithful? Are we going to be obedient? Are we going to be his witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit? Jerusalem was evangelized first, Acts chapter 1 through 7. The Spirit expanded the church through Judea and Samaria, Acts chapter 8 through 12. And then the gospel reached the ends of the earth in Acts 13 through 28. Now, we've heard these words so many times that they sometimes lose effect. We, we know that's what the church is about. We know that's the mission. We know that's the plan. But we've heard it so many times that it can almost cause us to be calloused to it. And mission involves taking the gospel to other places and other peoples. And it involves cross-cultural engagement. But the qualification to be a witness is the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be saved, obviously, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit. And the mission is to be his witnesses, and the extent of it is to the ends of the earth. I think about William Carey, a famous person from history who's referred to as the father of modern missions, especially as it relates to the English-speaking world. Uh, William Carey spent uh, 40 years in India as a missionary, and the role he played in advocating for missions still is impactful today. William Carey was saved and baptized in 1783. He was a reader. He was very interested in foreign countries, and uh, especially Captain James Cook's journals of his travels. He was just enamored with them. And his curiosity turned to spiritual concern for the salvation of the people around the world. And he came to believe that the Great Commission is a binding commandment on every generation of Christians. Because it is. And he published a piece and began to preach. And he got a lot of pushback from people in his own association that thought what he was thinking and his plan was foolish. 
But in 1793, he and his wife Dorothy, along with their son Felix, arrived in what was then the British colony of India. It would not be until 1800, seven years, that they would baptize the first convert to Christianity. He had the gift of linguistics and translating the Bible into Bengali and other dialects. And his quote about missions is what has inspired generations. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Expect expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. As a church and as individual believers, are we, are you, am I, expecting great things from God? Do I have the type of faith where I'm anticipating that God is going to work? And are we attempting things that require the power of God beyond our own strength to see them come to pass? If we're not, we should be. Because if we believe that this power that was manifested at Pentecost is the same power that is now in effect in our lives through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, then we're going to believe that God can do things that when He does them, that they bring Him glory, but they're not easily boxed in. Because it's the power of God that is at work. And God's plan for salvation is global. That's the reach of his plan is the nations. And then finally, the focus of God's plan is his glory. I want us to come back now to verse 11. In verse 11, he mentions the magnificent acts of God. Now, I think that could be all-encompassing. It could be creation. It could be eternity past. It could be all sorts of things. But I think it primarily focuses on Jesus. I think Jesus is front and center. I think as Luke writes, and, and he opens up especially in those first 11 verses, and he's talking about the finished work of Jesus. And now he's taking us through what's happening. The believers have now heard the message of Jesus. They've seen him ascend back into heaven. They've heard the message that he's coming again, just as was promised before. And now they've gone united in prayer, and they've prayed, and they've waited. The Holy Spirit has come. There's been supernatural power that has been manifested among them. And it says that they heard them speaking in their own languages about the magnificent acts of God, the gospel. And the focus of missions and the underlying motivation is the glory of God. It's not so we can pat ourselves on the back and take the credit for it. And it's not so that we can go to unusual places and do unusual things. It's so that people will be saved and God will be glorified. That's the purpose of the church. So that we would know him and God is worthy of our worship and our witness. Psalm 96 and verse 3 says, Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous work among all the peoples. Now, I believe missions is an exercise in worship because through a faithful witness, we are worshiping God because we're telling of his magnificent acts. But it's not only an exercise in worship, it is an invitation to worship. Because we get when we go in places and where people don't have a relationship with God. They don't know Jesus Christ. 
they're not worshiping him. There's a void in it. So as we share, we are inviting them to worship the God of the ages, the God who has done magnificent things. And God gets the glory for it. Most of us are not going to be remembered like William Carey. We're not going to have quotes shared generations from now. But in this moment, in this generation, we can do what God has called us to do. And we can be blessed to be a part of his plan for the ages. I think about Revelation 7 and verse 11 and 12. It says, all the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures. They fell face down before the throne and worshipped God. And they said, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now let's make these connections and I'm going to close. God cares about the lost. And if God cares about the lost, we should care about the lost. He commanded us to, but we should because it matters to him. God cares about the nations. We should care about the nations. Sometimes it's easy for us to get caught up in a lot of things that are happening uh, geopolitically and we get different ideas because of economics and a lot of different factors that are in play in the world. And all of those things are important, but they're not of utmost importance. So we've got to look beyond that and we've got to see people in every culture, every place, every nation, every tribe who don't have a relationship with God in Christ. And the church has the responsibility and the privilege to share with them. And we are to live for the glory of God in every aspect of our lives. If that's your motivation, hey, nobody will have to beg you to serve. I promise you that. If your motivation is the glory of God and you want to use your spiritual gifts, nobody's got to beg you to sign up in the Sprouts ministry. Nobody's got to twist your arm to help out over in the student ministry. Nobody's got to cajole you to come be a part of a mission opportunity. You're there because you are passionate about the things of God and you want to glorify Him with your life in whatever way that you can do that. So your posture is always toward the Lord. Lord, what would you have of me? How would you use my life for your glory? And ultimately, the method to implement God's plan is the church. It's the church. After all, Jesus promised He would build His church. And when Peter preached the sermon on the steps of the temple at Pentecost, thousands of people got saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. And then we continue to build on it even today as his people. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward the close of the service. And I know there's a lot here in this passage. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of theology. There's a lot of just depth as we think about what God did at Pentecost. But I want you to focus in for a moment on this idea of the power of the Holy Spirit manifested among his people indwelling us as followers of Jesus. Are you living a victorious life right now if you are a Christian? Or is there some type of stronghold or chains that are holding you back that are keeping you from that freedom that Christ has for you 
whatever it is that's holding you back, if it's a stronghold, it's a, it's a sin, it's, it's an addiction, it's a worry, it's whatever it is that's holding you back, you can't overcome it on your own. But with God's help, you can. There's victory in Christ. There's freedom in Christ. There's, there's peace to be found in Him. And maybe you know Him, but you've still been struggling with your own issues. You've got to come to a point of surrender and say, Lord, I want you to work in my life. And I want you to change me. Maybe today you don't know Jesus and you've never been saved. But you understand the gospel and you want to be today. You can meet Christ in this moment and your life can be changed forever. As a church, what might God be calling us to as individuals and collectively as believers that would be expecting great things from God and attempting great things for God? Whatever it is, let's not be afraid to step forward and say, Lord, here we are. Use us however you see fit. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. Thank you for this time together today around your word. We thank you for your power and the clarity of it. We thank you most of all for Jesus. We are humbled in your sight, Lord. We have nothing that we can bring that's of righteousness except what Christ has finished for us. So help us to live in light of that, to be a people filled with the Spirit, and help us, Lord, to be effective and faithful in what you've called us to do. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.